Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with Fluid Gender. This is in The Guardian. LGBT activists criticise Minister for Women over transgender comments. The Minister for Women has been condemned by transgender campaigners for saying that young people are having their gender reassigned as an answer to questions they are perhaps not asking themselves. Victoria Atkins cited an increase in the number of teenagers who were being referred to undergo gender reassignment treatment and declared we need to get down to the reasons why this is happening. The remarks provoked criticism from leading LGBT rights activists who said it was damaging to imply that transgender teens are being given treatment lightly. The Conservative MP made a comment in an interview with the Daily Telegraph in which she said, I read in the paper recently that there has been a large increase in the number of teenagers who are identifying as transgender and I think we need to get down to the reasons why this is happening. It may simply be a case of greater awareness. It may be that for some they see it as an answer to questions they are perhaps not asking themselves. We need to be particularly alert to this with regard to young people. The treatments are so serious and life-changing, I'm a little cautious of the use of those treatments because of the potential for the rest of their lives. Lots of questions are rightly being asked about how we treat young people, people whose bodies perhaps haven't developed yet. Fox Fisher, a patron of the LGBT Plus Helpline, said the Women's Minister's concerns need to be put into perspective and she needs to look into the actual reality of treatment given to transgender people and she needs to consult with transgender organisations and people that work on the ground. It is damaging to imply that transgender teens have been given treatment lightly. It's behind her decades of research and best practice. Transgender people's lives are at stake here and we know what we need. James Morton, the Scottish Transgender Alliance manager, said the number of transgender young people is very small and there is an obsession with their existence within sections of the media. There is around 3.5 million young people currently going through puberty in the UK with only around 300 gender dysphoric teenagers, less than 0.01%. Starting reversible puberty delaying medication this year, he said. Transgender young people remain very rare despite the current media obsession with their existence. The NHS requires people to be adults before they can get any irreversible gender reassignment treatment. Well, they may be rare at the moment, but give it time. The quote goes on. As Victoria Atkins explores this topic in more depth, I'm confident that she will see through the anti-transgender campaign of scaremongering and being reassured that the NHS assistance transgender youth receive is actually very carefully provided and safe. Figures released by the Tavistock Clinic, the UK's main centre specialising in gender issues, show that 2,519 referrals for a young person's gender identity development service were received during 2017 to 2018, around a quarter more than the previous year, which had 2,016 referrals. At the time that the figures were disclosed, Dr Polly Carmichael, Gender Identity Development Service Director of the Clinic's Gender Identity Development Service, said there was no single explanation for the increase in referral figures, adding there has been significant progress towards the acceptance and recognition of transgender and gender diverse people in our society. There was also greater public knowledge about specialist gender clinics and the pathways into them, and an increased awareness of the possibilities around physical treatments for younger adolescents. Owl Fisher, an interesting name, isn't it? Owl Fisher, that's an interesting name, isn't it? An advisor to all about transgender, an organisation looking to improve understanding of transgender people, said treatment for transgender teens is incredibly effective and the real concern should be that up to 45% of transgender youth are attempting suicide. They said, why isn't there a public outcry over the fact that a vulnerable group of children are suffering because we as a society are failing to give them the support that they need? Well, there's not an outcry because if there was, then questions would start being asked about transgender. Questions they don't want asked. The reason there's been an increase in the number of teenagers questioning their gender is very simple. One of the reasons anyway. And that's because they're being encouraged since childhood now to question their gender. 
and to think differently about gender, to confuse them from the earliest possible age so they're more open to the idea of fluid gender and transgender. That's why, that's why we're seeing now constant propaganda through school, entertainment and society in general. On Facebook, when you sign up to Facebook, there's 75 different genders to choose from. I mean, does it end there? I mean, how, how many more are they going to invent? This is why we're seeing pride festivals getting much more attention now, not least through social media and from celebrities, even heterosexual celebrities. It's all part of selling this agenda. Transgender, for some people, emphasis on some, is a response to them feeling that they are in the wrong body and they feel they should be in a different body and they should get all the support and encouragement they need to go through that. But there's a difference between, quite a vast difference, those who genuinely are in that position and those who have been encouraged to question their identity and thus believe they're in that position. It's no wonder transgender is listed as one of the subjects for hate speech criteria. No other gender you'll notice, only transgender. And this is what I've said before, if you can't criticize it, there's a very good chance there's an agenda behind it. This is the political correctness pyramid I talk about in episodes 13 and 15. I mentioned a few times before a guy called Dr. Richard Day and his predictions in inverted commas in 1969 to a group of pediatricians in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. See episode 17 for more information on that. And one of the predictions they made was that boys and girls will be made the same. And this is what we're seeing now with this fluid gender agenda. Another one of the predictions they made was that there will be reproduction without sex and sex without reproduction, meaning humans will be created not by sexual procreation as most humans are now, not by being born as most humans are now, but by artificial means. And this is the synthetic human agenda. We've got this whole thing, we've had it for a while now, of test tube methods of creating life. Well, that's kind of the same thing, although that's very, very rudimentary compared to where they want to go, which is fully synthetic laboratory created humans. Richard Day worked in population control in an organization called Planned Parenthood, a feminist-supported Rockefeller organization. The Rockefellers are right up there in the elite pyramid. Day was an executive of Planned Parenthood, and he talked about population control. And of course, if you've got all these different genders, you've got great potential for population control because you've got dramatically less sexual procreation as a result of people being any one of these different genders. And this is a massive increase in humans being created synthetically in laboratories rather than born. And if you want total control, then there's no better way to do that than creating humans from scratch. So they will be created in the way you want and connected to the transhuman technological hive mind cloud that I talk about in episode 11. And if you want a synthetic, at least partly technological race population, then doing away with the idea of biological reproduction and a biological form is an absolute essential requirement to do that. 
and if you can get people to think that they want to change their gender to a gender that doesn't procreate then they're going to be far more willing to go down that road this is what transgender or fluid gender is about and that's why they don't want people questioning it that's why it's a hate crime that's why questioning it is a hate crime that's why it's very high in the political correctness pyramid the higher something is in the political correctness pyramid the more important it is to the elite and their agenda that's why it's high up the political correctness pyramid I'm reading a book at the moment when Harry met Sally responding to the transgender moment which is looking at studies and asking questions the mainstream won't ask about transgender for fear of being labelled discriminatory and also because there's an agenda behind fluid gender one of the points the book makes is that a child's gender identity, especially a child, because you're so impressionable as a child, of course, this is why we're seeing all this propaganda aimed at kids about fluid gender now. The book's pointing out that a child's gender identity could in some cases be predicated on an emotional and or psychological response to a situation, and that if the emotional and or psychological response is addressed, then the desire to be a different gender may disappear, because it's got a emotional root, not a actual sexual biological root. It says that in some cases that emotional root could be what has manifested the desire to be a different gender because the child has because the child has mistakenly concluded I mean we're talking about kids here. They mistakenly concluded that a solution to their emotional problem is is that they're not the gender they think they should be. It's interesting then that Mermaids, a support group for gender diverse people, says in a brochure called If You Are Concerned About Your Child's Gender Behaviours, that a red flag should be raised when a therapist seems to focus on the child's behaviours as the problem rather than on helping the child cope with intolerance and social prejudice. In other words, why is the child decided they want to be this gender? Is there another reason behind it? Which is what I've just said. Why would a support group say that? I thought they were a support group. In fact, I think they're the main support group. A red flag should be raised when a therapist seems to focus on the child's behaviours as the problem rather than on helping the child cope with intolerance and social prejudice. But I agree with helping children and people deal with what's thrown at them. But at the same time, are we to believe that this massive explosion of people questioning their gender, not least the young, does not have other causes other than actually genuinely feeling they're in the wrong body in some cases one of the things the book also points out is that when you look at the claims of these when you look at the claims of these transgender activists not necessarily transgender people themselves or people who feel they should be transgender but activists there's contradictions galore in terms of the claims they say that the real self is this different gender to which they were born or the gender they are at the time when they decide they want to be a different gender that's the real self but then at the same time they say that gender is purely a social creation a social construct they say that the truth of the gender is whatever the person decides they are and yet they believe that there's a real self to be discovered which is this gender the person thinks they should be they say that people should be free to express themselves in whatever way they choose, which I agree with myself. But at the same time, they enforce 
pronouns, they enforce rules about misgendering, and they enforce acceptance of their ideology onto society. And another point it makes which is interesting is that they talk about the real self being trapped in their own body, as if there's some sort of metaphysical element to it, and yet there they are focused on the body, the material level. There's confusion all over the place when it comes to transgender or fluid gender, and at the same time, people are being told they can't say this or that in case it's offensive, when there's all this confusion. It's madness. The only way to really understand transgender and fluid gender is an open debate, with all the information made available, and all points of view expressed in the mainstream, and then people can make their own mind about what they believe. Once they've had all the information made available to them, and not just that which complies with the politically correct view and the official mainstream view, and not just that which complies with the politically correct view and the official mainstream view. But you can't have that debate with all this political correctness censorship. And that's why we have the censorship, because if it's openly debated, and that includes the claims of people like me and others, that it's leading to a very sinister end, not least with its fundamental connection to transhumanism, then people might start asking questions and getting answers that would be fatal, not just to the transgender agenda, but also the wider agenda behind the transgender agenda. And also people might start, and also people might start thinking twice about being transgender or fluid gender. If all the information about the biological situation of changing gender and what it's like living with a different gender was made available which this book I'm reading now looks at then people might start thinking twice about being a different gender people might start looking at actually is there a emotional response to a situation that happened in my life or the situation that I was in that actually has caused me to think this way is there another cause of it rather than just I feel I'm in the wrong body. For some people, the answer will be no. I actually genuinely do feel I'm in the wrong body and they should get support in that situation. But for other people, they may find there's a different answer to those questions. And people should be supported in that situation also to come to terms with addressing the situation and talking through it and also realizing that actually this is what made me feel this way. But of course, if you have an agenda people to be fluid gender and transgender then you don't want those questions to be asked you don't want that debate to be aired whether it's in the media or just general conversation and people some people won't ask questions because they won't think of those questions they just won't ever have thought to ask those questions unless they hear other people asking them in the media for example and those ultimately behind the agenda know that and that's where political correctness comes in to stop those debates being aired and those questions being asked and people just have to ask those questions anyway because if we don't what I've said about transgender and the agenda behind it will happen the next subject today is the final subject today is banking and this is in the Daily Mail Half of Britain's bank branches will be closed within five years, warns a former Barclays boss who admits closures are happening faster than expected. 
Up to half of all bank branches will close in the next five to ten years in a blow to millions of customers, a senior banker warned yesterday. Anthony Jenkins, Xbox of Barclays, said three and a half thousand of the UK seven thousand branches are at risk. He stressed the onslaught of closures in the past decade was happening faster than expected as banks slashed costs. Jobs are being axed as more people bank online and office tasks are automated. His comments come after consumer group which revealed banks had closed almost 3,000 branches in the past three years or around 60 every month. At the same time, free-to-use cash machines are being scrapped across the country. Critics say the closures have left shopkeepers and vulnerable people in towns and villages abandoned. Three years ago, Mr Jenkins warned technological changes in Britain would cause an Uber movement, like the shake-up in the cab industry that would see widespread bank branch closures. But yesterday, he admitted he had underestimated the pace of change. At the moment, there are around 7,000 branches operated by the country's biggest retail banks, including Lloyd's, Royal Bank of Scotland, HSBC, Barclays, TSB, Santander and the Nationwide Building Society, meaning 3,500 could be at risk. Mr Jenkins, around Barclays in 2012-2015, said, I predicted that somewhere between 20-50% of the jobs would go away in financial services and about the same number of branches would be closed. I think, actually, I underestimated on the branch closure side. We've already seen something like 25% of branches closed between 2011-2015. My expectation is that at least another 50% of branches will close over the next 5 to 10 years. He said an even greater proportion of jobs could also go in the banking industry, including customer service, middle managers and administrative rooms. He told BBC Radio 4's Today programme, these things get automated and the jobs will go away. Of course new jobs may be created, but my expectation is there will be many fewer than the ones that are eliminated. Yesterday, the big four banks, Barclays, HSBC, Lloyds and RBS, said they currently operated about 4,500 branches in total across the UK. They have batched only 4,000 in the past decade. RBS, which runs in that west, has closed around 1,380. The figure for Lloyds is 1,200, HSBC 800 and Barclays nearly 500. But there are growing concerns that shedding branches could trigger a rise in fraud as customers not used to the internet forced online where they are easy prey for criminals. Caroline Abrahams of Age UK said closing branches cuts costs for the banks but it's at best an inconvenience and at worst a serious blow for the millions of older people who are not online or au fait with mobile banking. Older people have the right to make and receive payments in a way that is safe, convenient and affordable and our banks need to live up to their responsibilities. UK Finance, which represents banks, insisted that branches were only closed as a last resort. A spokesman said bank branch visits have fallen by a quarter since 2012 with the development of new technology. All major banks offer day-to-day -day banking services through 11,500 post office branches. Well, as I've said before, when you know the agenda, stores like this are an open book. This is all part of moving banking online to allow for centralised control of banking and the entire money system. And this is where it's always been going, with the World Bank dictating all global finance for every country from a central point. Cash machines are being removed as part of the cashless society agenda. If you want an online banking system, you obviously have to get rid of cash. Also, a cashless society allows for tracking of purchases and also massive potential for control as those who challenge or expose authority or express opinions authority doesn't want expressed, like politically incorrect opinions, won't be allowed access to money. It points out in the article that shopkeepers are particularly at risk and that again suits the elite's agenda because the plan, as I've said before, is to get rid of business and replace it with giant corporations. This also plays into the Hunger Games society. This article also points out the increasing role automation is playing in the workplace and this too plays into the Hunger Games society. As humans are replaced by technology and replaced is the word. It's not about using technology for human benefit with humans ever seeing the technology, allowing humans to focus on more fun things that they can do in their spare time when the robots do the jobs. That's not the idea. 
the idea is for humans to be replaced in the workplace and living in a Hunger Games society, just getting by financially, if at all. I talk about this more in episode 22. The move from physical to online banking is only the start, as the plan is for a microchip under the skin or nanotechnology. See episode 11 and the transhuman smart city, mega city, mega region agenda. This is the connection between this story and that agenda. The idea is nanotechnology containing all your information will interact with payment devices and payment will be processed that way. And if you get on the wrong side of authority, a signal can be sent to your nanotechnology and you won't be able to purchase. And where it says here in the article about the elderly being at risk. There's a war on the elderly in various ways and this is one of them. They want to get rid of elderly people. If you have a depopulation agenda, then you target the most vulnerable first. So the fact that the elderly will be very significantly affected by all this means nothing. Because those running society don't care about people. It's about money on one level, literally in this case. But as I've said before, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And when you know that and the agenda, everything makes sense. The next subject is... spend. £200 million fighting to stop sick and disabled people getting benefits. Yep, you heard that right. This is in the mirror. Heartless Tory ministers have spent £200 million fighting to stop people getting sickness and disability benefits. Heartless Tory ministers have spent £200 million fighting to stop people getting sickness and disability benefits. Welfare chiefs splurged the vast sum revealed by the mirror contesting appeals for personal independence payments and employment and support allowance over five years. The two benefits, worth up to £141 a week, are replacing old-style payments to help fund the cost of illness and disability. But since 2013, more than 400,000 people have been denied PIP or ESA after a medical assessment owing to win it back on appeal. More than two-thirds of current appeal tribunals are successful. Our figures sparked fresh calls to reform the cruel and flawed assessment regime which is run by outsourcing giants Maximus for ESA and Atos and Capita for PIP. James Taylor, spokesman for Disability Charity Scope, declared the system isn't just failing disabled people, it's failing the taxpayer. The mayor obtained their figures from the Department for Work and Pensions through a Freedom of Information request. They showed the DWP ran up an estimated £199 million in direct operating costs between 2013 to 2014 and 2017 to 2018, dealing with the two stages of PIP and ESA appeals. The first stage, in general reviews called mandatory reconsiderations, cost the DWP an estimated £50.7 million for ESA and £43.4 million for PIP over five years. The second stage, external appeal tribunals, cost the DWP an estimated £58.7 million for ESA and £46.2 million for PIP. The overall cost per year of dealing with both types of PIP and ESA appeals shot up from around £32 million in 2015 to 2016 to £45 million in 2016 and 2017 and £62 million in 2017-2018. The true cost will be far higher because our figures do not count the price of running the appeal hearings themselves, which are paid for by the Ministry of Justice. In 2016 to 2017 alone, the MOJ spent £103.1 million on social security and child support tribunals, four out of five of which were either for PIP or ESA. Once those costs are included, our analysis suggests the PIP and ESA appeal system costs taxpayers more than £100 million a year. Labour MP Jack Dromey, a shadow DWP minister, said the mirror has exposed just how cruel Tory treatment of the vulnerable can be. Hard-hearted Ian Duncan-Smith and Estimate Vey have wasted nearly £200 million on denying desperately needed support for the sick and disabled. 
claimants sometimes dying have had to wait for up to a year for their appeals to be heard and to add insult to injury 7 out of 10 win on appeal. Labour MP Frank Field, chairman of the Commons Working Pensions Committee, said the department is spending mega sums of money defending its own poor decision making and putting claimants through the ringer in the process. DWP is already planning substantial improvements to the assessment processes, including recording assessments, but it must push harder and demand better from its assessors. It simply cannot afford not to. Well, and it suits the Hunger Games Society agenda when it is not doing that. The article goes on. Philip Anderson, head of policy at the MS Society, said we know people with MS are being failed by assessments that don't capture the reality of this painful and exhausting condition. These figures highlight how much money the system is wasting, money which can be better spent helping people with MS to live independently. Scope spokesman Mr Taylor added flawed assessments are leaving huge numbers of disabled people without the essential financial support they are entitled to. The government needs to urgently overhaul both the PIP and ESA assessments so they work for disabled people, not against them. DWP officials said the figures were internal snapshots, not official statistics, and should be treated with caution. They also said the figures for 2017 to 2018 were still undergoing validation and advised against drawing comparisons between different years because the data is frequently revised. We asked the DWP directly if the huge sum was fair or an appropriate use of public money. A DWP spokeswoman replied, we're committed to ensuring that disabled people get the support that they need, spending £50 billion a year supporting them and those with health conditions. A relatively small proportion of all decisions were overturned to appeal 4% for both PIP and ESA. And then it lists the statistics in four at the end of the article. Another couple of stories on this Hunger Games Society. This is from the 16th of August. This is in The Independent. London workers are queuing up for free food because they can't afford to eat. During rush hour on one of London's most affluent streets amid the bustle of the Strand, an orderly queue is forming. Dozens of people stand patiently and hungrily waiting for their dinner. The gathering near Charing Cross Station comprises people of all ages and ethnicities. Some look visibly homeless, clutching large carrier bags containing their worldly possessions. Others wear work clothes. Despite having a job, they can't afford to eat. I've come across that myself. I was in Manchester in January and someone who lives there said that some of the homeless people, because they talked to some of the homeless people. This person there who I met said that, who lives there, said some of them have jobs as well, but they just can't afford anywhere to live. The article goes on. Piles of food packages await under a pink gazebo. As volunteers hand them out, bread and pastries are scoffed into hungry mouths. Many people eat standing up, others find a picnic spot on the ground, some leave to take food home. Commuters passing by on the main road peer curiously before rushing on. Well-dressed couples cut through the snaking queue on their way to the theatre. It's a disgrace, shows one woman wearing a large pearl necklace as she and her husband saunter away. Tony Kane is a 39-year-old mother of three who comes to the handout every week. She explains she has spent five of the past eight years homeless with her children who are now in their twenties. They came to London from Hull after she found herself trapped in an abusive relationship. I didn't get any help. I asked if I could be moved and they said they would move us into a property just a few streets away from him. I just wanted to get out, she told the independent. That's when I decided to move out of Hull. We were supposed to move in with the family in Woking, but they left us stuck at King's Cross Station. We had to stay on the streets. When we first came, people used to rob off us. In the winter, the snow would just come down on us. Nobody would help. Miss Kane and her children were on the streets for nearly three years before they were given a council flat. Miss Kane and her children were on the streets for nearly three years before they were given a council flat. They were then evicted because she complained, at which point they became homeless again. She is now in another flat, but she says she is in the process of being evicted again. If you sit down and beg, yeah, you do get given food, but it's not going to be every day, she says. That's why this place is so important. Emmanuel 
Gramticupulus, 38, smiles gratefully as he is handed a food parcel. He has been sleeping rough in London for nearly two years after leaving Greece in the wake of the financial crash. He takes construction jobs and sends money home to his wife and baby daughter. His wife doesn't know he is homeless. A financial crash caused by Greece being in the European Union. And and this guy, Gramatokopoulos, says, I cannot pay to rent in London. It's very expensive, even one room. If I pay for a room here in London, I cannot pay the rent for my wife and three-year-old daughter at home. I must give the money to them, he explains. I could make only 25 euros a day in Greece after the crash, so I came here. I work all the time for construction agencies. They pay me, so I try to do my best. When you sleep in the streets and you have to wake up at 6am to go to your job, it's a little hard. When you finish, you don't have a place to have a shower. You don't rest properly to be ready for the next day. But I can do it for now. I'm grateful for that because I have work. Walking away from the gazebo, another EU national who didn't want to give his name grips a paper cup of steaming tea with a plastic bag of newly retrieved food hanging from his wrist. He looks smart in a sky blue shirt, navy trousers and black shoes and laughs when asked if he is homeless. No, I have a room but I share with three other people, he says, explaining his bedroom is where three other men sleep. He pays 60 quid a week for rent. Yes, I work, but this is what I can afford. Richard, 62, is smartly dressed in a white shirt that matches the colour of his bristly beard. He is well-spoken and well-versed in the political rhetoric on homelessness. You wouldn't expect him to be rough sleeping. A pensioner used to work in the operating department of a hospital. He's living off his NHS pension of just £350 a month. When his mother died two years ago, his life fell apart and he got evicted from his flat. I've been homeless for a year. It's not easy, especially when the weather gets bad, he says. Washing and showering can be really difficult, but how can I ever get a deposit? The rents are so expensive that landlords can charge whatever they want. Chatting jovially to people as they wait in the queue is Stephen Stewart, founder of the Friends of Essex and London Homeless Charity, which provides the food handouts in the same spot every Wednesday evening. When we first started, we had about 30 or 40 people each time. Now we have anywhere between 150 and 250. It's an opportunity for people to get some food so that they can still pay that bill to have somewhere to live, he says. We find that people are not homeless as we know it. A lot of people are homeless and working. We get delivery drivers quite a lot. There's a road sweeper who picks up the rubbish who comes along sometimes. He's not homeless, but I wouldn't imagine he's earning a great amount of money. A lot of people are no different to you and I. Rents outstrip wages by so much these days and people are losing their jobs all the time. Some people have just taken a left turn and need a bit of help. And there's another article here. This is published on the 18th of August, around the same time that all this stuff I've just read is going on and more in terms of the Hunger Games Society and homelessness. This is in the Independent. Princess Eugenie's £2 million wedding bill should be paid by her father, Labour MP demands. Now, normally I wouldn't cover a story about a royal wedding. That's why I didn't with the most recent one with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. But I'll cover it this time because I'm putting it in context with the stories I've just read. Princess Eugenie's reported £2 million wedding bill, which is being footed by taxpayers, should be paid by her father, a Labour MP has said. Chris Williamson is the man of the fabulously wealthy Prince Andrew, Duke of York, stump up for the mammoth chip, which has been heavily criticised. Well, I agree with this Labour MP. That's exactly what should happen. In any other family, that's what would happen. Someone from the family would pay the bill. But with the royals, it has to be the public. Princess Eugenie is ninth in line to the throne and carries out no royal duties. She will marry Jack Brooks Bank at St George's Chapel in Windsor Castle where Prince Harry wed Meghan Markle on the 12th of October. The wedding was initially expected to cost around a quarter... The wedding was initially expected to cost around three quarters of a million pounds and was set to be paid for by the couple's parents, but security costs have more than doubled it to almost two million pounds according to Daily Mirror. A real source told the newspaper 
The Duke of York has insisted his daughter's wedding must be a huge occasion to be remembered and wants everyone to get on board to celebrate the happy couple. Well, how is that any different from any other father who has a daughter being married? The article goes on, but in an interview with Sky News, Mr Williamson, MP for Derby North, said there is no need to have such a glamorous event. Prince Andrew, who is fabulously wealthy with an estimated worth of £65 million, should foot the bill himself. Who's heard of Princess Eugenie anyway? She carries no royal functions, no useful purpose to the public sphere, and yet we're having to spend this kind of money. The article goes on. The extra cash will reportedly fund more police officers on overtime wrecks. The increased presence is especially needed after Eugenie is understood to have demanded an open-top carriage ride as part of the nuptials. Emma Dent Code, Labour MP for Kensington, where Eugenie and Mr Brooksbank live in Kensington Palace at a vastly reduced rent, also condemned the bill. In these times of heightened security risks, it's irresponsible for a minor member of the royal family to have a high-profile, very public venue, she said. This may be the time to review the role and cost of minor royals. The controversy comes shortly after the princess said in a TV interview that she wanted to be seen as real. Well, good luck with that. This is what happens in the Hunger Games society. You've got stories like the stories I've just read about homelessness and food banks and the Hunger Games society. And at the same time, you've got taxpayers having to pay a wedding bill, an extravagant wedding bill for someone who is only a princess because her father is royal which means that two people of the right bloodline, or wrong bloodline, had sex, or at least one person of the bloodline had sex with someone who was then brought into the bloodline. And because of that, the people have to pay her wedding bill. That's all it is. People had sex at the time that would make her a princess. Now, that's all it is. If the royals really were the people that many believe them to be, they would pay the bill themselves rather than expecting the people to pay at a time of rising homelessness and food bank use in this country. But in the Hunger Games society, the elite parasite of the wealth of the people who live in poverty and only have access to what they need, as long as they keep authority happy, they only get access to their electronic cashless currency, which is a cashless currency because that's the best method of control. If they keep authority happy while the elite live in mega luxury and do whatever they like. And we're seeing this Hunger Games society unfold week by week by week. We do live in a society run by psychopaths. Just think what DWP. We really do live in a society run by psychopaths. And that explains so much when you realise that. Just think what the DWP could do with that nearly 200 million pounds that they're using to stop disabled people getting benefits. Think what they could do with that in a positive way. Think what the money spent on Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding could do, especially if you combine it with the nearly two million pounds for Princess Eugenia's wedding. But it's not about what's best for the people, it's about what's best for those controlling the people. We're looking at an unfolding Hunger Games society week after week after week because one point that needs making it's not the Tory party and Tory policy that is driving the Hunger Games society in this country it's the agenda currently being played out through the Tory party in this country because they at this time are the party in power the agenda is introduced regardless of party as is highlighted by these stories I've just read, 
society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. The military. This is in the Daily Mail. The man is out of his mind. MOD workers slammed Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson's crazy plans for guns on tractors, Ferris's landing craft and missile systems disguised as coke lorries. Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson is out of his mind for proposing a series of bizarre and outlandish ideas to bolster the UK's military sources of claimed. Among some of the concepts touted by Mr Williamson include fitting guns to tractors and disguising defence systems as Coca-Cola lorries, the sun says. Williamson is rumoured to have suggested that old commercial ferries should also be turned into beach assault crafts just part of a string of unusual requests which have riled military chiefs. His alleged proposals come in the midst of huge cuts, including a £20 billion shortfall in its £179 billion equipment budget. A source said, the man is out of his mind, no one knows what to do, we need billions in serious ideas to tackle serious problems. Yet Williamson is mucking about with his spider and coming up with crazy suggestions, the man is out of his mind, his behaviour is totally bizarre and no one knows what to do. Well, he works in government and he's involved with the military, so he would very likely be out of his mind because that position tends to attract crazy people. We live in a world run by crazy people. And I don't believe for a second that we need billions in serious ideas to tackle what to do with the military. One of the best ways to deal with the problem, if not the best way to deal with wars and conflicts that the UK and the US find themselves in, is to stop the UK and the US from starting them. That'll be a good start. The article goes on. The article goes on. The proposals have sparked anger within the ranks of the military as they now fear estranged demands could hamper their chances of securing additional funds from Philip Hammond's treasury. The Defence Secretary reportedly proposed the idea of Coca-Cola missile trucks during a meeting on the threat from Russia. A source told the Sun, Gavin just came out with it. He said, can't you buy tractors and put really expensive guns on them? In June, Williamson threatened to topple Theresa May after a bitter row over military cuts. He is said to have warned the Prime Minister that if she did not commit an extra £20 billion to defence, then Tory MPs would vote down her next budget, effectively passing a motion of no confidence in her. I made her and I can break her, Mr Williamson is said to have boasted to service chiefs. When Mr Williamson said he needed his own £20 billion, a minimum of £2 billion a year extra for the next decade, to avoid damaging defence cuts, Mrs May questioned whether the UK had to be a Tier 1 military power. Mr Williamson hit back that after Brexit it would be even more important for the UK to sit at the top table internationally. Mr Williamson has declined to comment. Well, this is just a glimpse into the madness running our world. Wars, invasions and conflicts are a great way to justify changing society because nothing changes society like a war. These proposals may seem ridiculous, and they are, but it's worth bearing in mind that the military is designed to be fused with law enforcement to create a psychopathic merciless law enforcement. I mean, we've already got that to an extent already in terms of the latter. And we're seeing, especially in North America, the law enforcement being fused with the military more and more. And the idea is that there is a psychopathic merciless law enforcement in the Hunger Games 1984 world. Uh, see episode four for what I mean by that. And in the end, a robotic police force with drones in the sky and to follow you wherever you go. This was brilliantly portrayed in an episode of Black Mirror called Metalhead. Also in the video game No Man's Sky, they have what are called Sentinels, and those are advanced drones, which seek you out, and they give you a chance to run away, but if you carry on doing what they didn't like, they shoot you with a laser. And if you cause enough of a problem, colossal, by colossal I mean you can only see their legs in shot unless you look up, 
colossal walker robots come after you and they mean business. I'm not saying No Man's Sky drones and walker robots are going to happen or are even planned. What I'm saying is we should not underestimate where they want to take law enforcement. The robots in the Black Mirror episode Metalhead are very much within the realms of where they want to go. Certainly the Terminator is a possibility except it would be a full robot as opposed to part human, part robot. I've said before that the plan is for a world army to impose the will of the unelected bureaucratic world government, the elite in the capital in the Hunger Games society. The world army would be there to impose its will on any nation or group that don't want to surrender their lives to the orders of the world government. Just like many people now in Europe don't want to surrender their rule of their lives to the European Union. This is the connection between this story and the smart city agenda because the unions would be there to impose the world government's will on the mega cities, mega regions, smart cities we now call countries and these smart cities would be controlled by artificial intelligence and we're now into the transhumanism agenda. See episode 11 for more information and the transgender fluid gender agenda that was the subject of the previous story fundamentally connected to the transhumanism agenda. And I know I've said this all before, but I always approach every episode as if I'm talking to people who've never heard an episode and have never come across the information before. Police and law enforcement have been for a while now in the vast majority of cases employed not on their ability to do the job, but on their personality or lack of it in some cases, particularly their psychopathic and narcissistic tendencies through something called psychometric testing, which is a system of gleaning answers that tell you someone's personality from carefully selected and worded questions. Those who turn out to have a psychopathic and narcissistic mentality from the answers to these psychometric tests in many cases get the job because of their personality. The idea is for a psychopathic merciless police state so it kind of helps to recruit people with that mentality. Of course, there are going to be some, even some of those with such personalities, who are going to massively rethink their approach to their job when they realise that their families and loved ones are designed to be living in the world they're working to create every day. And that's where the robotic, artificial intelligence law enforcement comes in. Because with that, there's no empathy, there's no compassion, there's no resistance, there's no questioning, there's no family ties, it's just a robot, it's just technology, it will do what it's programmed to do and that's why they want this robotic law enforcement. Up to this point, humans have done the job, but as this police state society becomes ever more and more apparent, then obviously some of the people within law enforcement are going to question their role within it and the world they're helping to create and that's when the robots are designed to come in. In fact, we're even seeing now already robots being developed for military purposes and law enforcement. It's happening now already anyway. Another reason they want this psychopathic merciless police force is because like laboratory rats or mice in a maze, if they walk down a certain channel, they get an electric shock and they come back to where they started. They'll go down a different channel, another shock, they'll then go down the channel eventually where there's no shock. And what happens is over time, you can take the shock equipment away the mouse or rat will always go down the channel you want without any intervention from you at all because you've changed their behaviour patterns. 
because it and it because it knows the consequences of going down a different channel. It will just become routine. It will just be done by reflex without thinking or questioning. That's the idea to frighten people into acquiescence to authority. And this is where the surveillance and spying of Facebook and internet companies actually being exposed is a good thing for them because we should not, I would suggest, fall into the trap of believing that they don't want us to know about all this surveillance. They do, because if you know you're being surveilled, then, well, at least some people anyway, you edit your behavior, you edit what you say, you edit what you do, and that's what they want people to do. So they do want us to know about all this surveillance. We've seen nothing yet, and the choice is either to carry on doing what most people have done up to this point to make a difference, which is nothing, or, to come together regardless of gender, race, religion, income bracket, etc. And meet this challenge in numbers. Because individually they can pick people off here and there. But in numbers, when there's billions of people being manipulated and controlled. And a tiny half will doing it. Then I think I see a way out of this. But people have to do it in numbers. And if they do, then it's a house of cards and it'll be brought to an end. It's just making a choice. It's down to us, it always has been. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contest and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.